You are Locked On Women's Basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Locked On Women's Basketball. I'm your host, Howard Magdal, reminding you you can follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB, uh, like us on Facebook, or go ahead and rate and review us on iTunes or your podcast listen of choice. Also, a reminder, go ahead and download the Summit Hoops app, uh, Summit with two Ts, uh, in honor of Pat, 24-7 coverage of women's basketball. And someone who we enjoy covering has been a big part of the women's basketball story for uh, several decades now uh, is the Oklahoma women's basketball coach, uh, Sherry Cole, who's here with us. Sherry, thank you so much for taking the time. Absolutely, and I apologize for the buzzers in the background. There's a little uh, men's basketball team camp going on, but we'll just soldier right through. Understood. That, that works just fine by me. I, I'm, I'm used to the buzzers. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to start with your arc within the game. Uh, I read a really interesting interview you did talking about Mary Patton, your fifth grade basketball coach and now uh, an OU season ticket holder uh, subsequent to that. But I'm wondering in such a football crazed state, how women's basketball broke through specifically to you growing up. Well, you know, uh, I was from a small town in southern Oklahoma, and it was the kind of school where uh, everybody did everything. You know, like I, I played basketball, ran track, was in the school play, I was in the choir, and I can promise you most other schools would not have wanted me in their school play or in their choir. <laughs> I might have made their basketball team or their track team, but the other two were not necessarily uh, fortes of mine. But when you're from a small town, you do just about anything and everything. And so... Uh, I became uh, obsessed with basketball, passionate about basketball at a young age. And yet when I graduated from high school, the opportunities to play college basketball at the highest level, being D1 level, were not that prominent. We knew about Texas and we knew about Tennessee, but you really didn't know about that much. And, you know, like even the University of Oklahoma, as major as it was, and we used to drive up to the football games. Mm -hmm. But... um, you just didn't hear about women's basketball very much. Right. And yet, by the time I, I competed at the NAI level, which was huge, by the way, in Oklahoma, there was a gal named Kelly Litch who played at Southwestern State who held all kinds of records. And I maintain to this day could have played for any Division One team in America. She was amazing. But it hadn't quite swept the Division One level yet. So uh, I was just fortunate. I think timing and spacing are... are uh, are responsible for so many of the things that happen in our lives, and I just I grew up at the right time and became a came of age at the right time in terms of the explosion of women's basketball. So it was it, it was sort of this um, marriage between when I when I took the head high school job at Norman High School, girls basketball had not been great at Norman's high, Norman High School, but boys basketball were going undefeated and winning the state championship, and football was big. And so you look at that and you say. Excellence is excellence, and a, a love for sport is a love for sport. If we can compete in the right way and play the game the way it's supposed to be played, it will go and it will it will be important to people, and that's what we did at the high school level, and did the same could be true. It was the same marriage at the University of Oklahoma. Our football team's winning. Everybody is crazy mad out of their minds for football. Basketball, men's basketball is good. Baseball is good. There's no reason women's basketball can't have the same sort of attraction and feel, and that's what happened. 
Well, so there are two parts to that that I think are really interesting. And, and, you know, so many of the pioneers who came, you know, before your generation uh, in, in terms of women's basketball did so not out of big cities, but out of these small towns where, like you said, there were a lot of people who were multitasking. And I guess I wonder whether you think that Title IX had a greater effect in areas with, let's say, a, a larger population concentration where people were already segmented doing other things and it brought opportunity level closer to a level playing field as opposed to in small town you grew up in and just uh, the ways in which people perhaps were already getting an opportunity to do that sometimes when there was the right voice. Uh, a Mary Patton, you know, in, in, in a million small towns around America. Yeah, you know, I, I think that um, that I've always said uh, Hilton was a great place to be from, and I mean that in all ways. You might want to take it, but but as a young kid growing up in a small town, there's this thing that you take away that I think is invaluable. And having raised my kids in the community of Norman, which is obviously a city, mm-hmm. even though we talk about it as a quintessential college town, there's over 100,000 people here. It's big, right. and and I've watched that, and I know what my experience was. When you come from a small town. You leave the gateway of that little town, and you you go wherever you go next, and you think there's nothing you can't do, hmm. and and it's it's relative, obviously, but there's this confidence that you take with you when you leave there that you can do anything because you have proven that you can do all these things. In a larger city, I think it's tough. You know, if if uh, my kids wanted to be uh, in a school play, they'd have had a really hard time because they were a whole lot better athletes than they were actors, and there were so many good actors in the Norman public school system, so. You just sort of learn some different lessons, and I think the the price of that often is that internal sense of I can mm-hmm. that grows so fervently sometimes in small towns. And I think Title IX reaching its tentacles into all these rural areas in the country found a lot of kids who had a whole bunch of I can inside of them, and so they took it and ran with it. That's really interesting. And, and I guess to that end, by the time you make a jump, directly from a very successful, but not all that uh, long-tenured high school coach, right to Oklahoma. Was that, you think, a key in your ability to feel like you were able to handle that right away? And by contrast, do you think that that was reflective of a time where there was uh, there, there were, let's say, fewer candidates for top women's basketball jobs as well. So someone can make that jump more directly at that time. No doubt it's both of those things. I've always said I was in the right place at the right time doing the right things. Hmm. Important caveat there. But no doubt it was when I got the job at Oklahoma in 1996, it's right on the cusp of the explosion of our game. Right. The Big 12 Conference was just forming. The first year of the Big 12 Conference was my first year as the head coach at Oklahoma. What a pivotal time. Women's basketball in terms of television exposure. ESPN was just, you know, UConn had just won their first championship and ESPN was grabbing a hold of that and it was creating this whole uh, East Coast momentum explosion that was to come. Along with the exposure explosion came the salary explosion, which then in turn creates the competitive nature for these jobs. So no doubt I was at the right place in the right time, the right place being I was had developed a high school program right here in this community. I could have been 
doing the same thing and the job at Ohio State opened up and I wouldn't have been considered for it hmm. because they weren't here watching. So right place, right time, but fueled with the experiences of growing up in an incredible small town, having an amazing family, and then the very unique and extraordinary opportunities I had as a player and an observer of fantastic coaching at Oklahoma Christian throughout my collegiate career, I was um, extraordinarily well prepared to take advantage of the time and the place. And so to, to take the program the way you did, uh, and certainly by 2002 you get to a national championship game, what kind of timeline did you have in your mind and what did you think were reasonable expectations when you came in to the program, and, and I asked that within the context of what you said earlier, talking about, you know, look, this is a college that was uh, excelling, university rather, was excelling in all these other sports. Is it simply a question of the right coach at the right time and all of these universities around the country that have success in all these other sports, women's basketball is much the same thing? You know, uh, yeah, that's a multi-layered question. I'll try to get all the answers and all the pieces of it. I do think fit is key. I, I think there are um, uh, coaches in programs, in, probably in, in every sport and uh, regardless of gender, where they're just a, a guy that fits at the right time, the right place. He just mm -hmm. fits. And I think that's probably the secret sauce of any athletic directors to be able to identify those folks who are going to resonate and fit, whether it be within their culture or within the community's culture or the state's culture. So I think that's certainly a big part of it. Um, when, I, when I think back to um, w when I got started here and what my expectations were, I, I have to reference Gino here because he, he was, uh, we were at the start of our friendship at that time as he w had recruited one of my players at Norman High School to come and play at Connecticut. And, I remember him telling me once I got the job um, that the worst thing I could do would be to promise how long something would take because how would anyone know? Mm -hmm. I didn't have enough information to even know what I was dealing with, much less be able to project how long something would take. He said you might project too far out and you might project too immediately and either one is going to get you. Mm -hmm. So um, don't, don't give them a time. Just get to work. And the great... Um, extraordinary gift, and it's funny that you asked this today, as I, I was sitting by uh, one of our assistant football coaches at Coach Stoops' uh, press conference earlier this week when he retired, and mm -hmm. they were introducing Lincoln Riley, and they said, 33 years old, and um, the, the assistant coach sitting next to me put his arm around me and said, how old were you? And I said, 31. And we both started laughing, and I said, and you know what the best part of that was? I had no idea what I didn't know. That was the greatest gift in the world. I had no idea what I didn't know. I didn't know how it was supposed to be. I didn't know how other people did it. I just did it in a way that fit with me and with my vision. And I think um, when I look back on that, uh, what a gift. Do what you, an extraordinary gift. Do you ever think of the gift as well that because of where the game was, the women's game specifically at that moment, there really wasn't a template that you either had to A, follow, or B, break out of. And you've been able to shape this in such a fundamental way, and obviously with a tremendous amount of success, but also specific to the way you yourself would want to do it because there was no mold you had to work against or with. Absolutely. There's a freedom in that and a confidence that you gain from that 
uh, because you're you're blazing a path. And I think sometimes as a profession we get in our own way because there are so many templates <coughs> out there. And people who try to uh, run a program just like Gino Ariema are going to struggle because there's only one Gino Ariema. And I could go down the list of that. And I think we lose sometimes the individuality that gives us a chance to be unique and extraordinarily successful. Let's talk about uh, Gino a little bit. Specifically, there were some comments he made during the Final Four. Uh, and I, I really wanted your take on it uh, for a few reasons. Number one, because they were outliers relative to uh, the way Gino approaches uh, the job and the way Gino approaches uh, trying to create opportunities uh, in the game. Uh, I know you have a, a long-time friendship with Gino. Uh, I also know you're a former president of the Women's Basketball Coaching Association. So when you have someone, uh, you know, a thought leader in the game saying things like, uh, you know, in essence, women are uh, not as interested as being uh, head coaches and assistant coaches as men, I'm wondering how you heard it and, and what your thoughts were on it across the board. Well, my immediate thoughts were that's not exactly what he meant. Hmm. Um, I think he always says what he means, but we don't always get the entire context of the thought in the soundbite that travels across the airwaves and becomes whatever it becomes. Right. I I think, and and again, I I don't I don't want to put words in his mouth because I, I because I know him, but I believe this is where he was coming from. I think he was saying that there are a lot of women who want a certain type of life, and that's a positive thing, meaning that we want to be mothers, we want to be immersed in, in the raising of our children, we, we want to be wives, we want to be professionals, there are all kinds of things that you want to do, and sometimes the way this job can be, and again, it's, it's sometimes a choice. Um, sometimes, and it's always a choice that someone makes, maybe a, a board of regents or an athletic director or a professional organization or whomever, but mm -hmm. the choice always comes from somewhere. Right. But, but there is not the freedom to be all those things in such a way that there is fulfillment. And I think what he was saying is that sometimes women choose. They have to choose between things, and um, that that sometimes limits the incredible candidates that could be seeking some of these jobs simply because they feel the way the profession is going that they can't do several things or both things simultaneously in a fulfilling manner. I think that's the gist of those quotes. Well, so that, that's, my, that's certainly my interpretation of them. Well, it's interesting. And, and so, so I, I was sitting there uh, you know, covering the Final Four, uh, when he said it, and it was definitely some surprise, and, uh, and Tara Vanderveer talked right after and talked about the fact that coaches don't get recycled also to get additional opportunities when uh, women who are coaching don't get those same opportunities she believes that men do. But look, to your point, there you are essentially a shining example of how to do this, of how to raise a family and become a Basketball Hall of Famer, as you were inducted last year, at the same time. And so I guess I wonder whether you think that that is external or internal, the pressure on women to be choosing, because Lord knows there are no shortage of 
men who are coaching, you know, in the men's game, in the women's game, who have families and who are making those choices in much the same way. I, I, I did a story with uh, Mick Cronin, the men's coach at the University of Cincinnati, and he talked about how he made that decision to have that time with his daughter, but how hard it is because, as you know, coaches work maybe harder than any other profession on the face of the earth. So do you think that is more external or internal when it comes to those pressures with women specifically? I think it's both. I think there are environments in which it's easier to satisfy um, the internal stretch and the internal pull Hmm. because your department may be organized or your culture may be supportive in very subtle ways. I, I doubt there are very many cultures that are um, uh, extremely overt in terms of uh, not supporting a, a female who's trying to write, raise family and, and be a ball coach. But mm-hmm. I think in very, I work in an environment where it it is viewed as an incredible positive to have your family around to do both. It, it's a very family-oriented uh, environment that's created through our obviously starts with our president, but goes through our incredible athletic director, Joe Castiglione. So this environment, I think, that I exist in is so much more um, uh, supportive of that that internal stretch or pull that I might feel. But I I will say this, and I know this will be viewed as as controversial in some ways, but, um, you know, I, I make this point to women sometimes that when... When my husband would take my kids to the dentist, for example, um, I would need to be at practice. They had a dentist appointment. He would take them to the dentist. Okay, fine, not a big deal. My mind could never quite let go of how that dentist appointment might be going. <laughs> that's just that's just a, a mom's instinct for whatever reason. And I'm certainly not dismissing the role of the father, but I can tell you that when my husband was doing coaching his baseball team and I was taking the children to the dentist I'm pretty sure he never really thought about whether or not the dentist appointment was going well that may be an example that's specific just to my particular um, uh, experience in parenting but there is just my point being that there is this pull that a mother has that um, never ever really uh, lessens whether she's wherever she is and and I think that learning to balance that and handle that um, and give yourself a break for that. We tend to be, females tend to be very, very hard on ourselves, especially moms when it comes to our kids. To be able to forgive ourselves for missing a thing or two or um, to allow other people to share in that experience, that's something that we have to learn how to do. We have to give ourselves permission sometimes and we're not great at that and I think on, on a large-scale basis, by and large, men are a little bit better at that than we are. That's really insightful, and, and, and we could probably spend the whole day on just the question as to whether it is harder uh, on balance for women to do that because society expects that of them or because there's something uh, that comes specific to being a mother, but it, it is certainly something that complicates the question. There's no question about it. Uh, uh, in terms of the game itself, and you know, you you have now a body of work that, like you said, stretches back from the year after UConn wins its first championship, uh, right on through the creation and then the real 
next steps of the Big 12 to get to the point where, you know, it's one of the best conferences in the country and uh, top to bottom, uh, fantastic to watch. I wonder whether when you're in it, you're able to feel and see and notice a significant difference in the level of play from you get there to what it was like and how hard it was to get uh, to the championship game in 2002 to getting back to the Final Four in 2010, right on through 2017. Do you see that difference, and where do you see those biggest differences, if so? Oh, yeah, I definitely feel the differences. Um, there are more great players playing. There are There's greater parity. There are uh, definitely uh, more sophisticated organizations uh, in terms of recruiting, and I mean um, from from the institutional standpoint uh, of the people doing the recruiting and then from the grassroots basketball explosion of the all the people involved in the other end of the recruiting process, it's night and day difference um, to what it was 20 years ago. And I think what, uh, what is maybe most challenging uh, at this point is being able to um, identify and cultivate the kids who, who fit you best, the, the student-athletes who fit the mission of your program and your purpose most cleanly. And I think it's difficult to identify that now because of the layers that exist between the recruit and the institution that, that really weren't there 20 years ago. It might have been a little bit harder to find them, but um, to identify the connection was lots easier because you could have conversations um, with with the the potential student athlete directly and there weren't all the other voices involved and most of that is an outgrowth of society because you may say now that okay you can get on the phone with that kid and we often do but the myriad of voices mm -hmm. that those athletes have coming at them constantly through the world of social media um, really prevents those authentic relationships sometimes from being able to take root and grow. I guess the That's flip one of the challenging, most challenging pieces. Well, and I guess the flip side of that is that the greater number of players who are capable of playing at a high level, do you find that you're able to find specific pieces for your system? Do you play in that very specific way? I mean, I've, I love watching your teams play, and w one of the reasons, uh, in part, is because there's this go-go-go pace that uh, leads to players figuring out how to make good decisions at a faster level than perhaps at some other college programs. But are you able to, therefore, be able to pick and choose a little more in terms of the type of player, not just uh, the person who fits uh, in the program as well right now? You know, yes and no. Um, there are so many more to choose from, which complicates the process. Hmm. Um, there are so many avenues, uh, and and the, the world is large, and it's not just the United States of America. It's the world right. where you can go and find these players. And I think um, trying to figure out sophisticated ways in which to ascertain uh, a student-athlete's intrinsic motivation level a student-athlete's um, awareness, a student-athlete's um, decision-making ability. Those are the things, like, I guess in the business world, they might call those soft skills. Mm -hmm. Those are the um, soft but absolutely integral skills for a player to be successful in our program. So 
um, identifying who can run and jump and, and make baskets is pretty easy. Right. That next layer of identification is pretty involved. And um, that's, I think, where the magic lies. So is that why, because, you know, you think about, all right, what, what's a Sherry Cole big, right? Is it Courtney Paris? Is it uh, Viennese uh, Pierre Lewis? Like, you know, they're, they're such different types of players, and they both had tremendous success in your system. So does the type of player they are not even come into play for you at that point? Or is this, do you have just an understanding going in, look, if this is the right fit as a person, you know, those, those soft skills that you're talking about, that you, you'll get them to run. You'll get them to be playing the way you need them to be playing. Yeah, that's a great question. And I have on my wall above my couch three photos, and it's our, of our three Final Four teams <laughs> on the Final Four court before they uh, in the practice the day before we played. And I tell our recruits often that um, as a point of of, uh, um, uh, uh, of experimentation, or I guess uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, point of reference. Describe, yeah, point yeah. of reference. Thank mm-hmm. you very much. Yeah. That that in 2002, our center was six foot two on a good day, and she couldn't <laughs> jump over a piece of paper. And I love her with all my heart, Jamie Talbert Weirich. Yep. Um, super close to her to this day. She knows she wasn't a very talented athlete, but she was absolutely fabulous inside of the four guards that we surrounded her with because she, if we said don't let a kid turn left, she wouldn't let him turn left. And if we said she knew exactly where to pop on penetration and how to move and make the defense make decisions. So she was fabulous. But the very next snapshot is a picture of the 2009 Final Four team in which Courtney Paris was our center, and she is so completely different from Jamie Talbert. Uh, uh, if Courtney Paris touched a basketball with one of her fingers, it was hers and no one else's. She could m- maybe one of the most prolific rebounders in the history of our game or mm-hmm. that our game will ever see. Um, you go snapshot over to 2010. Amanda Thompson was our four-man and Abby Lajuan was our five, and we played a high-low. And so I, when I talk to recruits, I talk about we really played in three different ways, and yet we played in three very similar ways because we were fundamental, uh, we ran the floor, we were selfless, uh, we were more concerned with the the whole uh, than we were the individual parts. And so how we string all that together and what it looks like depends on the pieces that we have. But but this big picture whole that we're playing toward will always be the same. So in that reference, it's not whether, you know, we don't have to have a a 6'5", thin, lanky post be successful. We can then come in all shapes and sizes, but they must be fundamental, and they must be more concerned about others than they are themselves, and they must be willing to to learn and and have curiosity as a, a, a reference point in their character. Those are the things that really we can't waver on. The rest of the stuff we can we can figure out how to pin it together so that it works. It all makes sense. Although I I will say, and and I'm curious how you see her fitting in right away, but uh, Anna Lanusa, when you look at, just, I've seen some film and uh, the way in which she approaches the game, it seems like such a perfect encore fit for you guys as well. I wonder how significant you think her role is going to be on the court uh, on day one, you know, bringing someone who's a top 35 player in the country. I think she's special, and I'm not one of the, I'm, I'm one of these people that I still believe that you don't that you use the word special only when it's really defined correctly. I, I try desperately hard not to overuse that word and hence make it redundant. I, I 
Anna has the work ethic. She certainly has the skill set. Uh, she has, I believe, the maturity and the overall big picture. When I say that, I mean this is a kid who knows who she wants to be when mm -hmm. this whole thing is said and done. And she in no way, shape, or form assumes that she is that already. But she has, she has a North Star that she's shooting toward. And she comes from a great home. And I feel like she has all of those pieces that fit together to give her a chance to be special. And the situation here presents itself where there are spots certainly up for grabs due to our graduation last year of, right. of five seniors that, that she could come in. And, you know, it goes back to that spacing and timing thing we talked about earlier. When uh, Lanisha Caulfield came here, uh, she was able to step right in and play immediately and learn quickly. And thus, because her maturity level matched her work ethic, was able to really expand as a player. For some players, they're not ready for that yet. Right. They can't take that. But I think Anna is one of those unique kids who's ready for those expectations and therefore will have a chance to really push the upward limits of her ceiling. And so for you, does she look at like an oversized two for you? I, You know, just looking purely at film, I, she looks to me like someone who could be a Kayla McBride type, someone who's, you know, bid for a two, uh, able to create those types of matchup issues. But look, you recruited her, you saw her in person, so you tell me what, you know, what are you seeing out of her? You know, I just see uh, Anna is a versatile basketball player. She can pass, she can shoot, and she can create opportunities for herself going to the rim. True triple threat basketball players don't come along all that often. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, we'll be able to use her in a variety of different ways. And the extent of that, um, I don't think has been revealed to any of us yet. But I've not yet seen really a thing that she can't do. And that it, it, I include in that a willingness to guard. I'm not saying that she yet has develop the capacity to be able to guard the unbelievable athletes that we see at this level. But she has a willingness to, which will lead to a capacity to. Well, I, I can't wait to see. I'm sure you're even more excited than I am, to be sure. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I want to talk uh, a big picture set of comments you made. I want I want to read them at length and then uh, talk to you a little bit about them, which I thought was really interesting and a different take than I've heard. You know, there's been a ton of conversation uh, within the media world, within the coaching world, about the number of transfers uh, that are uh, part of, you know, the men's and the women's game, quite frankly. And it's interesting the way it seems like a lot of times it is a one-sided conversation, either, you know, from the player's perspective, from the coach's perspective. Uh, th this is what you said. I think transferring is such an interesting thing right now. Every time, and it doesn't happen to us very often, so we're not well-versed in how to deal with it, but every time it does happen, the first thing I do is think, what could I have done better in the talent identification piece, in the vetting process, in the development of the kid, where could we have done better? And that, that really talks about, you know, the extent to which it's a relationship that there's a lot involved. But then there's from the coaching perspective, and you went on to say this. It's parasitic in that when players leave, they create holes in rosters. Holes in rosters create needs for coaches to find players. The only players who are available are players who are leaving. So it feeds itself in this giant circle, which then encourages them to leave because they get recruited again, and here we go. It's a maddening sort of thing to be a little bit uh, to be in the middle of. But when you think about it, recruiting is a little bit of a maddening thing. 
It's diametrically opposed to what we try to teach them when we get there. We ask, what do kids want? What do they need? And then we try to fulfill that before they realize what it really is that they want or need. And then they get here and we go, why are these kids so entitled? Obviously, we feed that cycle. Somewhere in the midst of all that, we have legislated and behaved our way into this corner where what's happening is a natural outgrowth. And so I, I just thought that was the most comprehensive and effective way of describing this entire ecosystem. And so the place to start, really, I think, is what do we do to change that ecosystem, number one? And number two, how much is it necessary to do it? Great question. As I listened to you read that quote, I thought, boy, I made us as a profession sound like a bunch of imbeciles. Not at um, all. No, just the opposite. <laughs> it, it's, it's human beings, and it's it, these 16, 17, 18-year-old young women. I mean, it, it makes all the sense in the world what you're describing, because how are you supposed to go about figuring that out? Listen, I, I'm 37. It's hard enough for me to know what I want. Right, I exactly. And and yet what we've created is a situation where we're at younger and younger ages. We're asking them to make these decisions that are going to affect their lives in a profound way mm -hmm. and uh, parents are involved in the process um, coaches uh, AAU coaches high school coaches whatever club coaches are involved in the process and and college coaches are involved in the process and it's not you know that the answer is simple and yet it's crazy complex because it's it's about individuals making decisions that what is right is more important than what leads to a desired outcome. Right. And that's very, very hard for people to do, all of us. To look at a situation and go, it's not best for this 15-year-old kid to try to make such an enormous decision at this age, at this time. And yet, I really want this 15-year-old kid to play for me because she can help us win a Big 12 title. Sure. And so being able to detach enough to look at that. When you're in the middle of it, it's like this horribly complicated scenario. You step back, and I, this is one of the reasons I always think it's so important for coaches to have friends in the quote-unquote real world. That, <laughs> because when you, if you ask a mother of a 15-year-old child who's not involved in being recruited as a basketball player that question, they'll laugh at your face. No, no, my 15-year-old is in no way, shape, or form capable or prepared to make such an enormous decision at this sure. time. And so if you detach from that and you look at, at the right answer to that question is not to pressure the 15-year-old kid to make that decision. But when you're in the middle of the heated battle and the outcome is so alluring, that siren song is just yanking you, it becomes a real complicated internal battle. And so, you know, the answer at the same time is, is simple and complex. Step back and do the right thing. Well, the, you, you know, I'm, I'm always asking my kids five layers of why. When, when I ask them something, they give me an answer, ask why, and they answer again, and I ask why, and they ask a, answer again. And eventually, even though they're highly annoyed, they get to the real <laughs> crux of the matter. Well, the real crux of the matter for all of us, if you went down that why tunnel, is, well, I might lose my job because I might not win enough games. Right. Right. And, and so then the question is, the begged question is, what are you hired to do? Are you hired to, to develop people and, and 
make this world a better place, you're hard to win games. And so that gets really complicated. It, it does. And, and then for, for the players who are making those choices as well, you know, I, I, I see the, the, the conversation a lot of times start with the transfer rate is high. And that always seems to me like a strange way of looking at it, because high compared to what, right? It, higher than it was? Okay, fine. You know, uh, is it higher than it should be? Well, that's a very different question, right? For these, you know, people 15, 16, 17 years old making decisions, that there would be a certain percentage that you you know, think of it as, let's say, an error rate, right? You know, that there was a group of people who fundamentally they made one choice and they're looking to make a different choice. And so I wonder whether you think that's logical and normal that there will be a certain percentage of players who not only can move and and make that choice, but probably should because there'd be a high rate of variability in how effectively you can make such a choice with all these voices in your head doing it at a young age. Um, Great question again, and I do think that there will always be an error rate I do also think, however, that we live at a, at a time in a day and an age in which commitment is not a real thing. Hmm. I, I think that, you know, and, and probably in, in your, while you were growing up, and I know in, in my parents' household when I was growing up, if, if you start something, you finish it. Right. And there weren't any discussions. There, there weren't any conversations. Unless you were um, being physically maimed in some way, um, you finished what you started. That's right. just what you did. And I think that that what we see right now is a natural outgrowth. And I don't blame our kids necessarily. Think about it. When when I liked a song on the radio, I went and bought the album. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I got like five songs that weren't really my favorite songs, but that song that I like was on that album, and so I got all of that. And now, when guys hear a song that they like on the radio, they go and get that song. Mm -hmm. And they can pick and choose whatever they want, and they don't have to get anything that they don't like. Well, you know what? One of these days, they're going to get married, and they're going to get a whole lot of what they like, and a little bit of what they don't like, too. (laughs) And they're going to have to be able to deal with that, and they're going to get a job. I used to say, I could teach high school forever if I just didn't have to grade papers. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God, I hated grading papers. I loved teaching, but I hated grading those stacks and stacks and stacks of essays. Well, you know what? That's part of teaching is grading papers. So you're not going to like every piece of what you do. And I think there's a, the quote-unquote error rate is exasperated because there are a lot of people who find a thing that they don't like and so want to run to find a place where there's everything that they do and that place that they do like and that place does not exist. That's right. utopia and it's nowhere. And so that inability to anchor in and say I'm going to get through this tough patch or I'm going to endure this piece that's not that great because there's all the stuff that is great. The ability for young people to handle that dissonance, if you will, and make something constructive out of it and then reap the rewards from that we know exist on the other side. Mm-hmm. That's part of it, too. And then lastly, and I think this does factor into the equation, is, is when they transfer. You know, a freshman year is hard. I don't care where you go. I don't care how acclimated you are. I don't care how per- perfect the fit is. 
every freshman has a period of time in which they wonder if they didn't just destroy their whole life because it's just so different. It's hard. And the greatest changes typically occur from the end of a freshman year to somewhere around the start or the middle of the sophomore year where it all starts to kind of make sense. And, and when kids so quickly jump at, at discomfort or, or fear or the um, age-old adage now, which is, I'm just not happy, um, if you can fight through that and choose to be happy for a while, in a little bit, pretty much the dust settles and you'll figure out it wasn't that bad of a deal. Provided, of course, that you made as sound of a decision with a group of experienced, um, influential adults who have your best interest at heart helping you to start with. If you don't have all that at the beginning, the likelihood of any of the rest of this working out is pretty slim. Which, as you know as well as anyone, is not always the case. So it, no. it, it's it's really complicated. And so I, I, I want to leave this discussion uh, about transfers by uh, empowering you. So you are in charge of the NCAA now. You have the opportunity to create a system uh, that takes into account all of those things that you just discussed, uh, the fact that uh, commitment itself is something very useful for uh, players to be able to have and do. And also it can take into account the fact that, you know, look, there are coaches who are recruiting from other programs year-round. So in, es in essence, you have to recruit your own players at some level 24-7, 365, which is a, a fairly absurd place to be as a coach, as you, as you well know. So do you set up a system where there's a transfer period and everyone has the right to go? Do you set up a system where if you commit to a school, you commit minimum of two years, three years, so you get through that freshman year and into that sophomore transfer period? What is your system? You get to create it. Um, that would require a lot more time to discuss and vet than we have right here. Fair enough. I, I, I will simply say say this that that I don't think it's I don't think the solution is to be found in legislation there are things that we can do legislatively that uh, for instance not allowing um, uh, a student athlete to sign until later maybe making verbal commitments um, mandatory therefore and I don't know how you do that but but therefore there wouldn't be so many early verbals which lead to putting people on the outside that may have been a better fit at a very early age, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So there are some things that, that you could perhaps do. But at the end of the day, it's like legislating morality. How do you do that? They're going to have to be a group of professionals who, who take a stand. And, and it's just like anything. If we want to stop the parasitic nature of transfers, then those of us who have roster holes um, don't immediately go to the transfer beds to fill them, which mm -hmm. means we may go with roster holes. Right. Are we willing to do that? So and, e and even a WBCA getting involved and in, in self-policing? I just think at some point um, professionals have to ask themselves what is the best thing for these kids that we're responsible for because at the end of the day, we may be trying to win basketball championships and put up banners and order rings for one another, 
but our charge is in higher education. Mm-hmm. Our job is to help educate, develop, and mold young people. And at some point, the onus of that falls on our shoulders and the decisions that we make. And until we are collectively responsible for that, and that begins one person at a time, one program at a time, I don't think the issue uh, is going to heal itself. No, I, I, I agree, and that, that's all really interesting insight, and uh, I'm, I deeply appreciate uh, the thought that you've given to it uh, and your voice in this debate, which I think is going to continue and I think has to. Uh, but before I let you go, I'm, I want to leave you with one last question and sort of a big picture about the way you look at your program. And this is a program that has a legacy of success with three Final Fours. This is a program that is playing in a Big 12 that is more competitive than it's ever been. And, and I guess the example I would use is that West Virginia team. Uh, and it's amazing to me that you have Tiny Smarton, you have Lene Montgomery, who, you know, played even bigger than her frame. And I look up at the end of the year, and they're the sixth seed in the Big 12. And that, to me, said everything about just how deep this conference was. When you think about year to year, what is a reasonable goal and do you think that has changed? And the example I'd use is I see the amount of um, negativity uh, that's directed Holly Warlick's way uh, over at Tennessee, uh, a program where she's gotten to three Elite Eights in the last five years. And yet the idea is, well, she's not doing what Pat Summit did. As we talked about, is a very different time in terms of depth for the game. What are your goals for your program? And have they changed to reflect the fact that Look, there are 50 to 75 teams competing where, uh, let's say, 20 to 25 were a few years ago. No, my, my goals haven't changed one bit. They have always been to maximize the potential of our student-athletes as hmm. people and as performers. That's it. No, have anything to do with winning X number of Big 12 championships or X number of Final Fours. It's about taking the kids that we have under our realm of responsibility and stretching them as far as we can possibly do that. And whatever that looks like at the end, if we've done that, that's our rating card. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and I think that that's where we have to be really careful uh, in terms of what our measurement tool is right. and what, what are we measuring ourselves by. And so how do you do it? I, I, because I, I think that's a great point. And so the idea is you could have your players grow every bit as much, but if there is greater competition for the same number of awards and victories and championships, then th- those, those measuring sticks are going to change. So how do you keep it consistent, and what do you look for specifically to know that, you know, look, this team lived up to what I wanted this team to be? It's very much individual and collective. Uh, our, our team collectively may or may not uh, play as well, perform as well, grow as much as we had hoped that they would or thought that they could, and we will grade ourselves accordingly on that. But at the same time, we might have three kids within that roster of 15 who blew it out of the water. The people that they became as a result of their four years at the University of Oklahoma was just a huge landslide victory. And so you balance all that out. I think that's the only way uh, to approach it and have any sort of of sanity or perspective because everything gets incredibly skewed if everything that you do is about how your win-loss looks at 
record looks at the end. If it's all about the world's measuring stick of your outcome, um, this profession drives people absolutely crazy. And I don't think it would allow, I think that perspective impedes our ability to do what we're called to do, which is develop people. So that sense of detachment, and I'm not saying that I have it all the time. I fight for that sense of detachment 24-7 every year. But that sense of detachment is what enables us to appropriately strive to grow those kids so that they graduate and leave our programs prepared to be the best version of themselves that they can be and ultimately to make a difference in the world. That's the charge. Right. If we win a championship or two or four or ten or fifty along the way, that's fantastic. But it's not the end all. Well, listen, goodness knows you've managed to uh, strike that balance so effectively throughout your career. So uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. And I, I know our listeners do as well. I, I um, certainly am grateful for all the time that you gave us today. Well, thank you for your insightful questions, and thank you for caring so much about our sport. We appreciate you. Absolutely. And and a reminder to our listeners, you can uh, hear these interviews by uh, following us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB. You can go ahead and rate and review us on iTunes, easiest way to help find us. And go to SummitHoops.com or go ahead and download our app to make sure that there are 24-7 Women's basketball updates coming your way. It's something that uh, we started last month and something I am still getting a kick out of whenever I get one of those alerts. So I think you'll enjoy it as well. Uh, I'm Howard Megdahl wishing you a wonderful day.